This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue for my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at a random. Any book for my entire comic book collection is eligible. Well, actually, only the ones that I paid no more than 25 cents for. So was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 29th episode of The Quarter Bin, I'm looking at Rune number 5 from Malibu Comics, cover dated February 1996. If for some reason you're listening to this episode without having listened to last episode, episode 28, I recommend that you do that before moving on to this one. In that episode, we covered the issue right before this one, rune number four. I should note that these issues are both from volume two of rune, which I don't think I mentioned last episode. But first, just a little feedback. Jason Trenner wrote about episode 25, coverage of an issue of Legends of the Dark Knight. Well, that was interesting. A human and mortal Batman. A person trained by Batman and neatly wrapped up in one issue. It was certainly a story that probably could be fitted into Batman's continuity if one felt like it, but it really didn't need to be. He added that he would have preferred to have a character like Mercy in the last Chris Nolan film instead of John Robin Grayson. That's an interesting thought, Jason. I hadn't really considered the cinematic value of Mercy, but that's a good point. Jason concludes with, sorry for the short email, but this issue was fun and interesting, but I didn't have much to say about it. Always glad to have your feedback, Jason. I mentioned in the prior episode that listener and feedbacker and comic book writer and podcaster, Ben Avery, once owned an entire run of the Ultraverse line. I confirmed that he indeed still does. As an expert on that line, I asked for his general comments and thoughts on Malibu. I was in college and an aspiring writer, and I was just getting back into comics as Image, and the comics born from the 90s were on the rise. I saw a small blurb in Wizard about an upcoming series called Nightman that I thought was cool. Then I heard what Ultraverse was all about, and that sounded pretty awesome. If Image was about art, Ultraverse was the writer's take on that. This was a comic book universe founded on writers. Writers were the gimmick, not embossed covers or holograms and all of that, which did come, but writers created the universe as a group. Writers hashed it out. It was a cohesive comic book line that would be similar to Marvel and DC with crossing over and the like, and the writers of the titles were working together to make certain that events in one title were reflected in others. I actually think that's a really great point, this focus on the writing that Ben mentions. My sense is that that Malibu and the Ultraverse have the best reputation these days of all the independence of that era, and it's probably because it was all about the writers. 90s-style art is very much out of fashion these days, probably for good reason, but 90s-style writing has maybe held up better. And that's not to say that Malibu and Ultraverse did not go in eventually for some of those popular 90s tropes. And obviously, I found this book and many other Malibus in the 25-cent bin. But I do think that just by reputation, theirs is a little bit higher than Image 
Ben says that this writer focus is what appealed to him and how much of a fan in particular he became of Nightman. After the Marvel purchase, Ben followed Nightman as he interacted with Gambit and Black Knight, Juggernaut, Loki, and even Phoenix. The emphasis on writers remained, but the writing was on the wall. The titles petered out and the Ultraverse was given an interesting one-shot issue that wrapped up the entirety of the universe. My character, Nightman, was in a single panel telling us his fate. But those writers are still what stand out to me. Steve Englehart, Steve Gerber, Mike W. Barr, James Robinson. There were others, and they also brought in sci-fi luminary Larry Niven. Now, I've recently learned in looking into a little bit of Malibu's history that Larry Niven did not write any of the titles, but the sci-fi legend was a founder and assisted in developing the Malibu Comics Bible, if you will, that backstory for the whole universe. On the character of Rune in particular, Ben pointed out that he was co-created by writer-artist Barry Windsor Smith, best known for his work on Conan the Barbarian. The character was a dark character, definitely not a hero, and Windsor Smith brought a strange vibe into the Ultraverse with the character. One of the cool elements of Marvel's buyout is that before the issues you're talking about, Rune had three crossovers with Conan. I'd have to check it out, but I believe he was the character with the most Marvel crossovers. Ben concludes with, Nightman and the Ultraverse are a big part of why I write comics now. The stories are strong, and I still enjoy going back and rereading those adventures. Thank you, Ben. Uh, more info on Ben's comic book writing, which includes work in the George R.R. R. Martin universe, and on adapting and expanding Bible stories, can be found at benavery.com. B-E-N-A-V-E-R-Y dot com. Now, on to the book for today, coming directly from the Ultraverse. Rune number five had a cover price of $1.50, whereas the cover itself says only $1.50, meaning I acquired the book at a reasonable 83% discount. The cover by Kyle Hotz is darkly moody. The copy promises Spawn of Evil versus the Holy Crusader which, combined with the story title, Resurrection, is kind of a spoiler since Crusader killed Rune at the end of last issue. Or did he? Well, evidently, no, he, he didn't. <laughs> the story, Resurrection, was written by Paul O'Connor with Lynn Kaminsky, with art by fewer people than last issue, just Patrick Rollo, Jeff Whiting, and Terry Pallet. The issue itself starts with us looking down on a bloody rune, arms outstretched. It's possible he's being carried. His name was Rune. He was many things in his day, king, exile, prince of void, devourer of worlds, and finally, lord of this pitiful medieval town. He used his wisdom to protect his people from the Black Plague, expecting only blood and total obedience in return. His town thrived while others died, and they killed him for it. As we turn our page, our perspective shifts, and yes, he is being carried, and yes, he is nailed to a cross. Some of his collaborators are hanged nearby. His main functionary, the burger, a village official from last issue, has not been killed, but his distinctive colorful hat has been nailed to a cross. Later that evening, the burger approaches the then-empty area. My hat! They must have reserved that stake for me, but I was too clever for them. They'll pay when my lord returns. 
The official looks up at Rune. I am nothing without you. What am I to do? Rune's mouth opens slightly, and the official shrieks. Crusader, the destroyer of Rune, now sits on the vampire's throne, and he hears the official shriek from far away. But Crusader is disillusioned. He thought his life's quest was at an end when he found Lord Rune. Rune seemed to be Satan himself. And with his death, this terrible age of evil triumphant must surely end. But when Crusader cut Rune nearly in half, no angels sang. The heavens did not part. Radiant light did not pour forth upon the earth. The world spun on, as evil and diseased as before. For Crusader, triumph over Satan felt no different than defeat. The next morning, the townfolk arrived at the site of the crucifixions to burn the bodies. If anyone notices that Rune seems to smile as the flames lick about his head, no one mentions it. Winter moves through the village, and Crusader finds himself the king of a village, a role he did not seek. For a time, the plague is held at bay, but when the spring comes and pilgrims and merchants move through, it returns. The first to exhibit the symptoms is Ione, the crusader's squire. She is dead a day later. The great mortality indeed returns, and any means of stopping it had gone to the grave with Rune. Some in the village gather in the cathedral. The building is incomplete, either it's fallen into disrepair or perhaps it was never completed. They gather to pray for their salvation and for the return of their lord, for the return of Rune. With a loud crash, he bursts through a window. Mere death cannot bind the dark god. Rune lives. These pitiful fools sought Rune's forgiveness, not the return of Rune in the flesh. Now it seems Rune is back in full, and there will be hell to pay. We learn the process of Lord's return. He sucked the life from the soul of the burger, hence his piercing shriek, that restored the flagging spark of his soul, then used the roaring flames to cover his escape. He imposed an exile on himself for the winter, gathering strength, and now he is ready to take down Crusader. In his human form, Crusader approaches Rune. I know not how you return from death, but I count it a blessing. Transforming into the huge form of Crusader, he continues, for by slaying you, I may yet drive evil from this world, and my quest will at last be complete. Rune flies into Crusader, and they tumble out of the church. Rune promises to feast upon Crusader's steaming heart. His fangs find Crusader's neck, and he absorbs the warrior's memories. And we get a Crusader origin story. While on his way to the Holy Land, a storm tossed Adrian upon the desolate shore of an unknown island. There, Adrian discovers a shrine and hears the voice of God. A brilliant light and thunderous voice promised Adrian great power if he would undertake a quest. Adrian agreed and was made a crusader, charged to walk the earth in service of justice until evil was driven from the face of the earth. Quest he despaired of completing until he confronted Rune. Rune taunts him that his existence implies more than Crusader's simple morality can account for. Crusader brings his hands together, and his mystical sword of blazing white energy appears. Even if he has misunderstood his calling, even if it's been a lie, Crusader still must stop Rune and his evil. Lord, give me strength for what I must do. 
but Rune taunts his weakened adversary, and his claws pierce Crusader's chestplate, and brilliant light pours forth. Now we get a full page of many black-clad, venom-like creatures, to be honest. I don't know if these are actual creatures, if these are representatives of the crowd, the villagers, under the sway of Rune. The narration leads me to that second conclusion, although the art makes them appear distinctly non-human. Either way, they surge over him like a living wave, venting all their anger, frustration, and fear. Rune offered them order and safety from terror of the random sort, while Crusader offered only human dignity and an example of how courage might hold back the dark, qualities that account for little in a world gone mad. Rune pushes away the dark beings and drinks whatever is left of Crusader's life force, after which he tosses him into the river from above the roof of the castle or the cathedral, wherever they are. It's a little hard to tell. The people beg for Rune's mercy, but Rune scolds them for being unworthy of his leadership. You deserve my mercy no more than you deserved my wisdom. And then we get to the last page of the fill-in. There are two last pages of the frame narrative that lead into the continuing story of Rune, but I'm going to stop here at page 20, where we learn that Rune finally and totally destroyed the village. You will find it on no map. Even the stones are scattered. Only I remain to tell the tale, and know that with Crusader died something precious, that when evil might have been destroyed, we proved all too fearful, all too human, to fully recover the destiny that Adam sacrificed in Eden. But the crusade continues. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown, an unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Are you troubled by the strange ending to Sherlock? Do you experience feeling of dread while waiting for Doctor Who to return? Have you or your family actually seen Orphan Black, Person of Interest, or Sleepy Hollow? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Log in to the home of all things geek, the Earth Station One Network. Our podcasts are on call 24 hours a day to serve all your geek needs. The ESO Network will be right there. We're ready to geek out with you. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. 
Classic, current, and beyond. Be part of the crew at ESOnetwork.com. And we're back. Full disclosure, which I probably should have mentioned last episode, I'm a big fan of Paul O'Connor's comic book blog, Long Box Graveyard, and I consider him an internet buddy. We had Paul on episode 72 of the Book Guy Show back in spring 2013 for a great conversation on the future of comics, digital comics, the app economy, etc. I'll post a link to that episode on the post for this episode at relativelygeeky.blogspot.com. If you're also a listener of Shortbox Showcase, you've also heard Paul in his blog mentioned. We use the Long Box Graveyard March Madness seedings of Sidekicks as a jumping-off point for our discussion of Sidekicks in episode 16 of that show. And I admit that the reason I picked up these two issues of Rune from the cheap bins was that Paul's name was on the cover. He spent the early part of his adult life writing comics professionally. I've never actually known anybody who wrote a comic book. I'm not counting following professionals on social media. So I admit a bias. And that being said, I thought the story was pretty good. As we talked about last episode, this is a fill-in. But seeing as I had no history whatsoever with Rune or the rest of the Malibu Ultraverse, a standalone two-parter was custom-made for someone like me. Now, in terms of what happens in the issue, the action beats at least, there's not a lot. The main action, the main event that happened in the issue, is the fight between Rune and Crusader. The rest of the issue is atmospherics and character moments, most of which are pretty good. I did like the take on Crusader's reign as king of the village, and how the most noble of intentions, the most heroic of heroes, may not be capable of leadership, at least not in a time of crisis. It was clearly pointed out in the prior issue, and repeated at the start of this one, that Rune's village was largely immune from the plague. He kept evil at bay with a different type of evil. Despite being more pure and more worthy than Rune, Rune may have in fact been a better ruler for the village than Crusader was. I don't know that Paul was intending political commentary with this scenario, but you can't help but notice that the good and holy person was incapable of leading, while the vampiric Prince of Void was in fact an effective political leader. But like last issue, O'Connor's strength as a writer is the dialogue and the caption boxes. Again, I hope you get got across just how good his writing and descriptions are in the many times that I included verbatim examples in the synopsis. Paul actually wrote a little bit about these issues on his blog, and his own comments included this bit of self-reflection. But for the most part, my script is a series of scenes that don't build on each other, and character bits that go nowhere. Against that backdrop, the fight with Crusader is uninspired and not the clash of medieval titans that I hoped it would be. So it seems that I have a higher view of this issue than the actual writer does of it. In terms of character bits that go nowhere, the only one I can think of is the young squire Ione. I would love to have known more about her because there are some lingering questions such as how she came into Crusader's service, her own biography, etc., it seemed like there was good story potential there, and her death did lack a bit of the intended punch, because you know, we hadn't seen as much of her as we could have. But on that other part, I think Paul's own assessment of his work is, like I said, a bit harsh. I think the scenes build on each other well, and there's, there's nothing missing in the A to B to C to D steps of the plot. 
The only thing I didn't follow was whether Rune was actually empowered by the village fathers pledging loyalty to him. We know that didn't exactly resurrect him, but his reappearance, crashing through the window at the exact moment of their prayers for him to return, I don't know coincidental timing. Or maybe Rune was just biding his time till his people recognized their need for him. That last would actually make sense, but I don't know that the story said that. The final fight with Crusader was good, and finding a way inside the fight to give Crusader's origin story was cool. I could possibly argue that there is some tell-don't-show going on here, but again, the tell was so strong. The prose that gave us that story was so strong that that didn't bother me. Of course, I have to talk about the religious nature of the overall stories. I've mentioned before, I pay close attention to how that type of storyline or imagery is handled. Sometimes it's handled well, and sometimes not so much. My understanding is that the white light that Adrian saw in the shrine was an alien being that is part of the Ultraverse backstory, which he interpreted as the voice of God. And even though he is incorrect in this assumption, and incorrectly interprets this as the voice of God, this misunderstanding is never criticized, and Crusader is never made fun of for his belief. And I appreciate that. The presence of religious imagery and religious behavior among the populace made sense, given the time period of the story. To have said a story in medieval Europe without referencing the culture of faith and belief that permeated Europe at the time, without referencing the church, would have been noticeable. And like the handling of Crusader, the handling of the religious aspects of the setting and the story also seemed fair and and, and well executed. The verdict on rune number five, it was a fill-in, and it had some of the feelings of a fill-in. Nothing happened to the main character, nothing changed, nothing mattered, quote-unquote. But it wrapped up the story from the prior issue well, and I liked the character of Crusader and thought the fight turned out very satisfactorily. That wraps up my coverage of Rune number 5, bringing episode 29 of the Quarterbin to a close. And episode 30 will be... Nah, I'm not going to tell you. The content of episode 30 is going to be a surprise. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the Quarterbin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.